नमो तगवत अर्हत संबुधास नमो तगवत अर्हत संबुधास नमो तगवत अर्हत संबुधास Therefore, you should train yourselves thus. We will develop and cultivate the liberation of mind by limitless goodwill. Make it our vehicle. Make it our basis. Stabilize it. Exercise ourselves in it, and fully perfect it. Thus, should you train yourselves. This is the words of the Buddha. the buddha exhorting us how we should train in metta so we have come to uh, the halfway point of this retreat you've learned a lot about metta so far and you're going to continue to learn a lot about metta there's more talks to go today um what i'd like to discuss with you is how we what do we do how do we make practicing metta our livelihood and what do we do in our daily lives to develop this practice so but first i wanted to start out with talking a little bit about the definition now bante ji uh, explained to you um why he calls metta loving friendliness as opposed to loving kindness um i like to add something that i found within the last year that i found to be interesting regarding the word metta where the loving part comes from the word metta just means friend or friendly friendliness the word is loving come from and one of the ways that you could uh, translate uh, metta using looking at the roots is from the root mid the root mid is an interesting root cuz it means to love but it also means to grow fat or to grow large So you could say that metta is to grow large or grow fat with friendliness. And this so we grow our minds, we grow our mind limitlessly with metta, with goodwill. And so <clears throat> the metta mindset is important to develop and it's important to understand that metta is not magic. So like I said during the guided meditation this morning you know when when we practice metta we're not expecting all kinds of miracles and you know all kinds of things to happen we're not really necessarily ex- expecting that we have like our brain waves are going out into the world and you know going to other people and all these kind of things metta is for one reason metta is for the directly counteracting ill will in our minds. And one of my favorite uh it's not a Buddhist poem but I think it encapsulates metta very well. It's called Outwitted by Edward Markham. And it goes like this. They drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic rebel a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took them in. That is metta. regardless of what other people think about you or they like you or they draw it they they you know go into their own circle and they keep you out of the circle it doesn't matter instead of saying hmm i'm just going to make my own circle over here no we encircle everybody that is metta limitless goodwill so Bhante Panyaratna spoke at length about anger yesterday so I'm not going to go too much into it but I wanted to speak uh, very briefly and uh, what you heard um in the beginning that I spoke about the uh, liberation of mind that is called chetovimuti so if we have metta chetovimuti we are liberating our mind or freeing our mind through metta what are we freeing our mind from of of anger ill will aversion the very first lines of the dhammapada go 
um, talk about the mind. The mind is the master. Mind is the maker. Right? All actions are led by the mind. Mind is their master. Mind is their maker. Actors speak with a defiled state of mind. Then suffering follows as the cartwheel follows the foot of the ox. Right? So this gives us an incentive. Right? We don't want to have a mind like this. Right? Think about the simile that the Buddha is talking about. The cartwheel following the foot of the ox. Think about this poor ox latched to this heavy burden and it's pulling the burden just over and over and over, pulling the burden. And maybe there's even a a driver on top of it and he's whipping the ox, move faster. And if you have ever maybe carried anything behind you like a wheelbarrow, you might even notice that um, sometimes the wheels nip at your, he- your heels, right? So the ox is getting nipped at. It's a pretty miserable simile, right? And that simile is a heavy mind, a mind of anger, a mind of ill will, and a, an unskillful mind. Well, what's the opposite of that? Actors speak with a pure state of mind. Then happiness follows you like your shadow follows you without departing. When you are free from ill will and anger and you have this mind of metta, this mind of goodwill, it's like your shadow. It's light. You don't even notice your shadow's ever there. It's not weighing you down. It's not causing you to suffer because you have this mind liberated from these defilements. And so this is why we practice metta, to do this, to directly counteract our ill will, <clears throat> and um, make, sh- make it so that we abandon this in our mind. Because there's three roots, right? The Buddha talks about three roots that arise, or three poisons in relation to craving. First one is greed. Second one is hatred. And the third one is delusion. Right? The Buddha describes Nibbana as the abandoning of greed, hatred, and delusion. That's one of the ways he describes Nibbana most often. So metta is going against one of the three roots that hold us in samsara. That's the importance of metta. This is the importance of why we should develop this as part of our daily practice and our daily life. Even there's a, a sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya called Subduing Hatred, um, where the Buddha says if there's somebody, somebody has arisen hatred or ill will or aversion in you, what do you do? He gives five things. Three of them are, first one is metta. So the first thing you do is you practice metta for this person. Second thing is practicing compassion. Third is practicing equanimity. Fourth is um, forgetting or ignoring the person. And the fifth is understanding that they're a being that's subject to their own actions. So these are these five things, but the very first thing is practicing metta for this person. There's very, very few spot, places in the ancient text where the Buddha talks specifically about practicing metta towards an individual. This is one of those places. So there's a wonderful story called the anger-eating demon. And uh, <clears throat> I want to tell you this story briefly here. This story is very, very ancient. It goes back to some of the, old, um, the oldest texts, and it's been retold over the thousands of years in Buddhism. But the way the story goes is this. There's Saka. Saka is king of the devas, king of the gods. And Saka is a very, um, he practices the Dhamma, and he's very, um, you know, a, a good disciple of the Dhamma, and practicing and doing good things, and practicing metta and all these things. So the king of the gods is away. And while the king of the gods is away, this demon, this really ugly, nasty, big demon, just comes into the throne rooms and sits right down on Saka's throne. And so all his attendants, all the the devas are all really angry, like, how dare you do that? You can't do this. Get out of this throne. And so they're all cursing him and, and, you know, just being really angry that this demon would do this. Well, there's a reason why he's called the anger-eating demon. 
Every time he was thrown an insult, every time there was ill will thrown at him, he became more handsome, more good-looking, until he was this very, very you know, uh, radiant-looking, anger-eating demon. And you think to yourself, that's kind of weird. Well, how does that work? Right? But if you think about it, what happens when you feed anger? You're feeding your anger. Your anger, the anger wants you to do this. You're giving it what it wants. So you don't want, so that's what happens when you feed this anger-eating demon. And so then the story goes that Saka came back and saw this demon. And of course, Saka didn't, you know, start and, and, you know, right off the top start yelling and screaming at him. He says, oh, my name is Saka. I'm the king of the gods. And, and he was very kind to him. And the more kind he was to him, the more ugly the demon got until the demon was done and the demon left. So that's a very ancient um, story about the anger-eating demon. And so if we practice metta, what we want to do is, um, there's a wonderful uh, little thing from the Dhammapada that says, happy we live. This is from the Sukhavaga. There's a whole section of the Dhammapada on happiness. Happy we live, friendly amidst the hostile. Amidst, friend, uh, amidst hostile people, we live free from hatred. So that's the end goal. That's what we want to do as practitioners. And of course, as Bhante said yesterday, hatred is never appeased by hatred. Only by goodwill, by non-hatred, is this appeased. This is an ancient law. So what's the first step? How do we, what's the, the first thing we do to, to look at making metta our livelihood? Well, as uh, I have been alluding to, this is requiring a persistent vigilance against aversion and ill will that arise in your mind in every aspect of your, of your life. It's about being mindful, right? Uh, as Bhante Panyaratana spoke about uh, and Bhante Ji spoke about, this is a mindfulness. When we, when we read the Karaniya Metta Sutta, one should develop this mindfulness. We need the mindfulness to be able to, un, to, to see when anger arises in our mind. That's the only way that we can understand it. And that's the only way that we can begin to counteract it. <clears throat> so this is the first step is to develop this consistent mindfulness in our practice. So when we are mindful and we develop our mindfulness, when something happens, like normally something happens and we don't even think about it if we're not mindful instantly and then we're just on this roller coaster of anger. Right? And you, you can't get off the roller coaster you know, mid-ride. Mid, uh, That's why Bhante Ji says, you, you know, if somebody... Um, is angry at you or coming at you with a bat, you don't give them metta. Right? You, you can't, metta doesn't work mid-ride in the middle of the anger. Metta is for <clears throat> the time before that, so that you, when you see that anger arise, you know you have the techniques, you have the skills, and you have the ability to counteract or to let go of that anger before it leeches into unskillful words and actions. So whatever situation that we have in life, we can apply the correct medicine. Metta has been called a cooling balm. Now this is something that we do to, uh, like Bhante said, nobody wants to be around a fire. Nobody wants to get burned. Right? We cool the fire with metta. And so when we have these, um, you know, one of the things obviously that we can do is we apply the four Brahma Viharas in our life. And I'll talk a little bit, a little bit later on about the four Brahma Viharas. Another thing that's very helpful is, is to kind of view things that happen in our life as something that is teaching us or at the very least giving us an opportunity to practice. When things happen, somebody gets a, uh, does something to us, instead of taking it very personal and getting angry and, and, and feeding and propagating these thoughts in our minds, we can say, oh, okay, now this is a chance for me to practice. 
You know, and I've done for however many years or however many lifetimes in the past, I've just, I've propagated these thoughts and just let them go on and on and on. But for now, now from now on, I want to do this. I want to counteract these thoughts and practice in this way. So, metta, now to talk a little bit about the, the uh, Noble Eightfold Path. Right? I'm not, I don't need to go into detail. I think most of you, this is not a beginner retreat. Most of you know what the Noble Eightfold Path is. But the Noble Eightfold Path is this wonderful package that the Buddha gives us on how to live if we want to lead to lead down the road to freedom, if we want to end our journey in samsara, end our suffering. So the Buddha put it in this nice package for us and gave it to us and said, here, this is how you practice. And so some people, I've heard it you know, asked here before, people say you know, they know all about these lists, 37 this, 5 this, all this. And they, and they say, and they say, I don't see metta in any of these lists. Where is it? Well, the obvious answer is it's everywhere. Metta suffuses the practice. It suffuses this noble eightfold path. You think about <clears throat> um, there's the, uh, the noble eightfold path can be divided into three sections. Right? There's sila. Sila is our following our precepts. It's doing the uh, training ourselves to do skillful thoughts, words, and deeds and that are beneficial to ourselves and others. That is metta. I'll speak about that a little bit later. That is metta, because you're doing this, what you're doing has far-reaching effects beyond just your own mind. So that's our sila, right? Samadhi is our practicing. Uh, the, well, let me see, the sila is right intention, right um, livelihood, right speech. So we are living our lives like a gift to all beings. That's metta. In the samadhi, the samadhi division is right effort. Right effort is abandoning unskillful mind states, abiding in skillful mind states. Your mind states not only affect you, but they affect those around you. Right mindfulness, right um, concentration. Mind, being mindful allows us to make better choices, to, have, to act with wisdom, to act with insight. And when we develop insight, we understand metta. You know, it was, it was interesting, I was talking with Bhante, and, and we were talking about metta, and this was a couple weeks ago, and he said, until you see deeply impermanence, your metta is surface level. When you understand with insight, your metta is deep and it comes naturally. So even just the development of this insight is metta. Everything that you do in this Noble Eightfold practice is suffused with metta. And of course it's also in the Panya division, which is right, um, right view and right intention. It's right there and right intention. Right intention is threefold. Having uh, thoughts of letting go of renunciation as opposed to clinging and, gra and grasping and covetousness having thoughts of goodwill instead of ill will, and having thoughts of harmlessness or compassion instead of harmfulness. So just by living this practice, you are a force of metta. It's very important for us to understand this. Not only are we a force of metta, there's other factors. It's the Brahma Viharas, the four divine abodes. At the end of the Metta Sutta, 
you can see that the, the Buddha says that this is a divine abode. This is a divine abiding. And that is because your mind, if you've ever had a mind full of anger, oh, it's so horrible. It's so heavy. It's so burdensome. And then you notice a mind, when your mind is free of anger, just like the shadow, right? And so when you notice this, it's like heaven. It's like you're, I, I, you're free of this hell that it was in your mind. And you are abiding with Brahma. Brahma is the highest God. You're abiding in these, this heavenly mind state. <clears throat> and so the, obviously the first um, of the Brahma Viharas is Metta, which we've been talking about. And one of the things also I wanted to say is if when you read the suttas, when the Buddha is talking about um, metta, he's almost always talking about practicing the others as well. This, that introduction that I read to you, at, right after that is abide, um, you know, uh, cultivating uh, the next one, compassion, cultivating um, uh, appreciative joy, cultivating equanimity. So the Buddha is telling us to, you practice these all together. They, they work together in this regard. So the second um, of the Brahma Viharas is karuna, or compassion. And compassion is important, because compassion is understanding. Compassion is you understand that there are beings that are suffering. Maybe you see a, a somebody who is suffering. And you have a thought of harmlessness, a thought of compassion for this person, a thought of understanding. You know, maybe you want to do something to help alleviate this person's suffering. But the important thing with compassion is that compassion always needs to be coupled with wisdom. We can, have, we can, do, very, we can do things with compassion that turn out to be not so skillful. Not so, um, you know, we, we might have the compassion and intention to do things. And then afterwards we realize, oh, well, I shouldn't have done that because then this happened and this was unskillful and then somebody got hurt from this and all these kind of things. So it's good to have the compassion, but you have to watch out because that compassion can be so strong that it overwhelms you and, you know, it, it, and it becomes useless in a way. So that's why uh, one of my favorite terms from, um, from another tradition is actually from Pima Chodron. She calls it idiot compassion. When I first read that, I was like, oh, that's perfect. I like that. You know, you want to have compassion, but you have to want to have compassion with understanding and wisdom. And so mudita, mudita is um, appreciative joy. Mudita is directly counteracting that feeling, the, the um, thoughts of jealousy and covetousness and thoughts of, you know, oh, this person doesn't deserve that. Why do they have this and I don't? Right? That resentment is ill will. That resentment is anger. That resentment is part of that mind that is heavy and burdensome and it's not worth it. So instead of Whatever somebody has, you know, and, and this is uh, in the guided meditation, you know, this was part of um, may, all, may, other, you know, may all of us find happiness and rejoice in the happiness of others. Right? You're rejoicing if somebody is successful, if somebody is, has something that, that they like, then somebody is happy, you are happy with them. You are happy for them. Whatever you know, they do in, in their life, in their practice, you know, that's not of, of your concern. Don't worry about that. What you want is you want, you're concerned with your own mind. You're concerned with, you know, whatever's, I'm happy for them. Okay, now I come and I focus on my own mind. Instead of propagating these thoughts of resentment and um, jealousy. It's not worth it. And of course, <clears throat> When all else fails, there's uh, upekka, or equanimity. This is a mind that is an even keel, a mind that is not being 
caught or dragged between likes and dislikes. Many, many situations in, in this world, in our, our life, our experience, that, you know, go to use compassion as an example. We have compassion and we want to do something and we want to, you know, do these grand things, right? And, but the world sometimes doesn't allow that or the world has other plans, right? Equanimity allows us to, to, uh, to have this <clears throat> peace of mind when we um, go up against our expectations and our expectations are, are not met and destroyed. We have this equanimous mind. So it's important to, to understand you know, all these practices that we're doing, all this practice I'm going to talk about today is about you. It's about your mind. If other people write, you know, draw you out of the circle, you know, you, you can't do anything about that. You can, and if, and if you can't abide with, in metta for the person, at least you can abide with the mind equanimous. You know, so you're, you're not dealing with anger and, and, ill will and, and all of these negative states. <clears throat> okay, so I want to move now directly into talking more about how we do these things, how we practice this in our daily lives. And of course, just like I started out in the first guided meditation, I'm gonna talk about metta to self. Because it's so important. It's very important. And um, you cannot give metta to others unless you have it yourself. Examine your mind. You know, one of the things that I, I uh, have noticed in terms of my almost, in my decade of practices, what I've let go of, and what I've let go of a lot is self-judgment and extreme self-criticism. Most of my life, I was really harsh to myself, really judgmental to myself. There were parts of my life I hated myself, right? And it was these kind of practices, and I started developing actually metta for myself before I even knew what metta was. But it's these kind of practices that helped me to, to get over that and to allow myself to let go of, of these, this self-judgment and this criticism in my mind. Now, of course, I'm not an awakened being, so I still have those in my mind. I'm still self-judgmental and critical and all these kind of things sometimes. But the level of which that I used to be compared to now, it's an extreme drop. And because of this, there was, time, there was a time where I was, humans suck, these people are horrible, blah, blah, blah. Why? So I was a human. I hated myself. I was critical to myself. So I was critical to everybody else too. And what happened in the practice is when I dropped you know, the heavy criticism and, and negativity towards myself, it dropped for others as well. So this is important. So this is not a selfish thing. This is all of this practice you are doing for yourself, but you're doing it for others as well. Because everything you do in this practice affects those around you. So, and of course, as I was just explaining, sometimes the hardest person to give metta to is yourself. On that first day when I, when I you know, was doing the guided meditation, did you think I was going to say, like, the person we most hate, and you're, and you're thinking, oh yeah, my enemy. And I said, myself, yourself, right? How, that surprised you, I'm sure. Um, because <laughs> we don't think about these things. And this society, it's very like, if you think about yourself, that's selfish. But in this society, what I've seen is that we, in not thinking about ourselves and not taking care of ourselves, we, and we lose ourselves in others. Right? We don't take care of ourselves. We don't make ourselves better. We'd rather just avoid that, ignore it, and lose ourselves in somebody else. Try to fix somebody else instead of ourselves. Right? So... This practice is focusing in where we need to be, with our own minds, with our own practice. And when we, do, when we work on that, then it's much easier to work with other people. 
And so there's a simile that came to my mind while I was meditating a couple years ago. I, as a child, I was in, on a plane a lot visiting relatives. And if you've been on a plane before, you know that there's this little safety speech in the beginning. How many people actually listen to that speech? <laughs> oh, that's good. I'm glad some people listen to the speech. <clears throat> well, what do, what do they say in the speech? You know, as a young kid, I was enthralled. I loved flying and I was listening, you know, listening to the safety speech. And they say, in the event of decompression, the air will drop. And what do they say? They say, please put your own mask on before you put on the, a child or the person next to you. And I was thought, why is that? You know, as a kid, it's like, well, that kind of doesn't make sense. Well, then it hit me, well, duh, you're useless to other people if you're passed out. How can you help somebody else if you're passed out? So you put your own mask on first. You're stable and secure in yourself. And then you're able to help others. But this is why it's important to do that. And... <clears throat> You know, it's not only just as a, something that you sit down and do, but when you're going through tough times, positive self-talk. You know, there's some times where I, I maybe, you know, I'm going through a lot hard times and my mind is very filled with these negative mind states and I can't meditate and I'm meditating and it sucks and all this kind of stuff. And all I can do is I, I fall back to giving myself metta. Right? That's what, sometimes that's all you can do. You give yourself metta. It's very, sometimes I have to say, you know, Jay, you're doing a good thing. You know, I know it's tough. You, know, you, you can do this. You can keep going forward. This positive self-talk. I know it sounds corny and stupid, um, but it works. It's beneficial. It's, it's something that I highly suggest. Because, well, actually, I would say once you start to become your own best friend, then talking to yourself in that way is, is a lot less corny. It actually, <laughs> it actually, because you're actually, there's no one like, like, oh, this is corny. You know why? Because you're, you know, when you're friends with yourself, then it's like, okay, well, yeah, you can talk to yourself about these things, just like you can talk to your friends. So, and then, of course, there's, um, in the Buddhist tradition, when it comes to, um, the Buddha talks about when uh, a monastic or a disciple does something wrong. There's three things that they do. The first thing to do is you acknowledge that you did a transgression. The second thing is that you, um, that you, uh, wait. <laughs> oh man, I just went, I just blanked out. Um, so you acknowledge that, that this has been a trans transgression. You make amends in according with the Dhamma. That's usually like asking for forgiveness or apologizing. Um, or, you know, if you did something wrong, if you stole or whatever, you, you make amends for it. And the third thing is to um, have future restraint. In modern times, I've heard this, I've heard, uh, it's very similar, it's called AFL. Acknowledge, forgive, and learn. So you acknowledge that you did something stupid. You forgive yourself. And if somebody did something to you, you forgive others. You make amends for that. And then you learn from that. Going back to what I said a couple minutes ago about seeing experiences in life as everything is the potential for you to learn from. All your experiences. So you can keep this in your mind. This part of metta. Right? Bhante, uh, Bhante Ji said that forgiveness is the precursor to metta in his Q&A. To forgive yourself is to begin to have that goodwill and that friendship for yourself. And when you have that friendship for yourself, it's very easy to have friendship for others. Until then, it's gonna sound really corny and stupid. <laughs> but keep practicing, it's important. Okay, <clears throat> so what are some concrete ways that we want to, that we, how do we develop and practice metta in our daily lives? How do we make it our livelihoods? First thing is the precepts. This first thing I'm going to, uh, well, I have a list of things. And the first thing I want to talk about is the precepts. P 
Buddha calls the precepts five faultless gifts to the world. These are gifts that are ancient, that nobody can argue with, and they give a gift of fearlessness to those around you. Think about people that you know. Think about people in your life. There's somebody who you know that they're not gonna try to kill you. They're not gonna try to harm you in some way. They're not gonna try to steal from you, lie to you. They're, they're, they're trustworthy people. What does that give you? It gives you a gift of fearlessness. You have to worry about this person, this person, these things, but you don't have to worry about this person. Right? That's at least one person that you don't have to worry about. Right? So w when you practice these precepts, in your daily life. People know this, people see it, people understand this is a person I can trust. And you give that gift of fearlessness to others. And the Buddha also says that you partake in a part of that as well. When you give that gift to others, you get part of that back from other people. Part of the benefits of metta, which I'm not going to go into. Hopefully, Bhante Sila will go into that yesterday, where you're dear to human beings, as Bhante Panyaratana said, dear to non human beings. Think about good people in your life, you know, people that you want to, you know, that do good things. You, uh, they are a rare gift, and so you want to help them and support them. Why? Because they've given you this gift, and you want to give them back that gift. So practicing these precepts is important in that regard. <clears throat> practicing patience. The Buddha says that patience, patient endurance is the best meditation. Patience is important. Patience is hard. You know, somebody comes up to, you, to us at work or whatever and we're busy and we don't wanna, we don't wanna hear it, we don't wanna deal with it. And what would we normally do? We're like, okay, okay, you know, how do I get this person away from me without making, you know, being too mean and all these kind of things? Practice patience. When you're on a long line, and you know, the, uh, maybe at the the the, reg the uh, uh, um, what you call it, um, uh, food place, food uh, shopping. Wow. <laughs> Well, anyway, so you're on a long line, right? And somebody has a ton of food and all of a sudden they come out and there's like 30 or 40 different coupons and you're like, oh my God, I gotta, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. I gotta. That's, when you, that's a lesson. That's teaching you how to practice patience. Take, don't let these experiences go by. Use these experiences to practice. That's when you practice patience. Well, develop that patience. Patience is important. Because patience allows us to have, to develop that mindfulness, and that allows us to make sure that our mind doesn't get on these roller coasters of ill will and anger. We want to be able to have the time to make a choice instead of going with the flow. Developing equanimity in hard situations, knowing when <clears throat> you've done enough, knowing when you you're hurting yourself and continuing on trying to do something further. There's times when you have to know, okay, to protect myself, I have to step away from this. I have to get away from this. I have to do something else. That's equanimity. Right? You, can, uh, you can detach yourself from that situation. Before you speak, before you go up to somebody, Give them metta, practice metta, right? Or think what, how you want to say something in a way that's gonna be beneficial to yourself and to the other person. Practice metta before you speak. In every interaction that you do, practice metta. When you're going around, you can practice it. That, that um, metta practice that I taught you today, exalted release of mind, it's very easy to do when you're just doing anything. When you're just walking around, boom, your sphere is going out and you're just pervading metta, right? It's very easy to do. You don't even have to use words in that regard. It's very easy um, to just pervade metta. Whenever you have the mindfulness, whenever you remember, okay, now I'm gonna pervade metta. 
Because you'll find when you're pervading metta, when you have a mind of goodwill, things just go a lot easier. Things, you know, normally we're worried about, oh, this is going to happen and, and this, the, you know, we have this a mind of negativity. What I found, <clears throat> even before I was a Buddhist, was that if I kept, uh, continued a mind of positivity, if I had a positive mind, things always went better. Even if it was harder, it, they would have been worse off if I had a negative mind. So there's no situation where, not ha- where having metta is bad. Right? You want to, if you have that a, a mindset where, of goodwill for everybody, you have everybody's best interest at heart, including yourself. That's why you have to, we're not losing ourselves and others. We are remembering ourselves, all of us, ourselves. We are part of everybody. So never forget yourself. And <clears throat> learning how to de-escalate a situation instead of escalating a situation. I went over a little bit about this. Or if there's a situation, somebody's angry, somebody's annoyed, somebody doesn't have any patience, right? And, and you're there, right? What happens normally? Maybe, you know, maybe they're not angry at you, maybe they're just angry at something. You get drawn in some way or another, right? Or maybe they're, they're pissed off and they come home and they yell at you, right? And what do you do? You yell right back. And then it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. You're escalating a situation. And so this is not easy to de-escalate a situation. This is where it requires mindfulness and, and goodwill to <clears throat> when you're confronted with somebody who's so full, somebody who's on that roller coaster, and you know you're, you're not gonna be able to just slap them and end and the roller coaster. That's not gonna work. They're, they're on that roller coaster. You don't wanna get on with them. How do you de-escalate the situation? That takes skill, that takes practice. That's not easy. But one of those ways that you can do it is by controlling yourself, keeping a mind of metta. And you practice that in this situation. It's not something that you're gonna go out tomorrow and do. You have to practice this. Allowing, you know, taking, <clears throat> giving a pause. If somebody's really, really angry or, or really going on a tangent, what I found is that if you just don't say anything, if you just allow silence to happen, that actually gives them like, then they start to realize what they're doing and then it like, then it starts to de-escalate. Slowly, slowly, slowly. So it's important in that regard, you don't want to escalate a situation because that is making things worse for yourself and it's making things worse for the people involved. Being able to de-escalate a situation is practicing metta for yourself and for others. And so those are very basic, general ways on how to practice metta. How about some more specific with family and friends? Now this is often, you know, the, the, the closer the people are to us, this is often the hardest because right, we have a strong attachment to these you know, family and friends. We have <clears throat> a strong bond with them. And so you know, if they do something we don't like or if they go against it, that, it hurts even more right, than the stranger because we have this attachment. So with family and friends, it's important to be able to develop equanimity. Oftentimes, it's very easy to practice metta you know, uh, or, or to have the feelings of, of, of goodwill for family members and friends. Now, when there is a time where maybe you don't have that goodwill, then you practice goodwill, practice metta for that person. But you also want to practice equanimity, not only for family members, but for everybody in, in these situations. But for a family member, there's many times, many people come, they have lots of hard situations, you know, where they can't, it, it's very easy, if you're living with people, or if you go to school, or you go to work with people, and, okay, I have to deal with this person for eight hours, and then I can go home and be away from them. But that, when you have to live with somebody, it's a lot different, it's a lot harder. 
in that regard. So this is why developing equanimity is important. Is what, we want. We, what we don't want to do is we don't want to enable bad behavior. That's important. You know, with our, with our relatives or with our children, with, with our parents even. There's been people here who come here and their parents are, you know, they, they say, how do I have metta for my parents? <laughs> so we don't want to enable bad behavior. We want to be able to have goodwill and compassion and love for our family members. But we have to be able to protect ourselves and do what we feel, um, what we can see with awareness, with mindfulness and insight is in the best interest for them and for you. <clears throat> so another uh, good way of practicing metta is to really listen. Sometimes people don't need for you to say something. Sometimes it's just important to listen. Just be an ear for this person. You know, a spouse or whoever comes home and they're angry and they had a bad day at work. You know, don't escalate it. <clears throat> De-escalate it. Listen. Just be a, a kind presence. If you've ever been in, in the presence of somebody who really emanates metta, it's just such kindness, safety, security, like you're not getting judged at all. Right? You want to practice that. Practice really listening, giving an ear, trying not to be too judgmental with this regard. And of course with kids, most of my adult life, I worked with kids in one aspect or another. Um, so I've seen a lot of things relating to kids and, and parents today. And one of the things that I would like to say in terms of metta is allowing your children to grow. These days, it's very common for people to be very controlling of the children, and you know the children um, can feel very stifled and feel very, um, you know, very locked in. And instead of you know maybe you know I'm almost forty, so I'm not that you know um, young and I'm not that old. But so, but I remember what it was like to be able to just go out and play and do all these kind of things that, that kids used to be able to do. Whereas today, it's very restricted and very regimental and all these kind of things and kids are getting very stifled. So we really want to think about <clears throat> practicing this metta for the children and allowing them to be children, allowing them to grow. You know, children, if you, um, sometimes that's hard because it requires some equanimity. Parents don't want their children to get hurt. They don't want anything bad to happen to the children. But if the children don't learn and don't understand from bad experiences, right? How do they know how to become, when they become adults, how to handle things in life? So it's important to have that, um, to, to have metta for children in this regard. You know, examine your own intentions and examine what you really feel is best for the children. Um, so what about work or school? When you're at work, you're at school, whatever, at your desk, just when you have a second, when you remember, when you have a mindfulness, boom. Emanate metta out to everybody at work, all your coworkers. When you're walking around, just emanate metta. Pervade your metta. Put that sphere out and encompass all of wherever you're working, office building, whatever building, you know, and just pervade, you know, you can really see. It's easy in some ways to develop, have metta and compassion for your coworkers because you're kind of, you're, doing the same job in many ways that they are. So you understand a little bit more what they're going through. So you can you know, have compassion for them and, and have metta for them. And for the people who don't like you or cause you trouble, have equanimity for them. You, know? <clears throat> you practice this with your coworkers because you're going you're gonna to be with them for at least eight hours your day, sometimes more. And so you can, in eight hours is a lot of, um, is a big chunk of your day. So you want to make that eight hours as heavenly as possible, as opposed to like a hell. But having mudita, having appreciative joy for others, somebody gets a promotion, instead of, oh, I deserve that promotion, blah, blah, blah. You know, okay, 
I didn't get this promotion, it's okay. I have joy that they got this promotion or that they got this or that they got that. Having compassion um, for your coworkers. And sometimes just being able to pause at work is very important. Um, you, you, as a practitioner, what you can do, what you have a unique ability to do is actually um, provide a atmosphere that people might not experience otherwise. I'll give it an example. You know, when I was, uh, um, I was in child protective services and you know, I had my own little pod and you know, uh, on the outside of my pod I had uh, for all my case files, there was a cabinet and I was getting into Buddhism and I liked, you know, I had all these kind of things and there, I found uh, at a store that there was this football, uh, one foot square Zen garden. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to have a Zen garden at my desk. I'm going to have fun. And you know, when I need to, I'm going to take time and practice. And you know, just take a breather out of my day and practice and play in the sand, right? <clears throat> and so then I put it there, and I would just do it. And then I noticed as people were coming to talk to me, then they would start playing with the Zen garden, right? And then, and then like I, I, it like kind of took off from this thing. I didn't even expect it. It was just for me to you know play with the sand a little bit. And so then I started getting all these like little, like if you're online at Barnes and Noble, they have these like, you know, little box things, little, you know, trinkets and things. So I developed this little section where people can just come and just de-stress, play with the sand. And I would use it. And then some people would just come and they would just use it, right? And so it wasn't something that I intentionally begun, but it was something that became meta for my coworkers. It became something that they knew that they could come here, de-stress for a couple minutes, talk to me about whatever, um, and then go on with their day. So this is the, the power that you have to help others at work. You know, instead of thinking of it as just, well, it's, uh, you know, I have to do this to get paid, then I go home. You know, what can you do, not only for other people, but for your own practice, practicing metta, practicing meditation, all these kind of things. You can do this at work. Um, so it's important to, to keep that in mind. So what about society? <clears throat> Just society in general. When, one of the things that we do here is when we're walking, when a car goes by, we wave. Right? So this is one of these things that you can do. And when you go, when you go for a walk the next couple of days, practice, wave. And when you're waving, you can give metta to that person. And one of the things that we use is a Pali word called sukihotu, which means may you be happy. So it's very easy to say sukihotu in your mind. You know, just to give metta to people as, as you know, you're going about in society. If while you're driving, you're stuck in traffic, while you're on public transport, whatever, during these times, you can, you know, have this mind of metta. You can wave. You can even just give a smile. You know how a smile is such a small thing, but it's such an important thing that can really change people's days. So it's important to be able to do that. Now, I, a couple of months ago, I did a, a metta retreat in New York City, and I, this woman came up to me during the retreat, and she's like, oh, I can't do this metta thing. It's, it's tough. You know, she had all this negativity, and, and the last day, she came up to me afterwards, and she's like, Yesterday I went out and I was waving and practicing. And this was in New York City. She's like, I'm practicing method, I'm waving. And there was a woman, she was came and I, and I offered to help her bring in her, her groceries and all this kind of stuff. And I said, wow. Now she's, she's, she's practicing method. Of course, I don't know if I would do that in the middle of New York City, but, but it's like that's the power of, of metta, what metta can do. Um, so it's important to think about that in society, just giving a smile. Um, there's, you know, uh, before I had my career when I was younger um, and when I worked a lot of different jobs, there's jobs where I had to be like on a register and I hated being on a register. There's people coming, like just lines and lines of people for eight hours a day. And most of the time the people were really, they were on the phone or they didn't care, they were grumpy or whatever. They just wanted their, their cigarettes and their, and their coffee and they didn't want to, you know, you, you could have been a robot, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> And so I'm on this register, and I'm like, in, you know, all this negativity in my mind, and uh, you know, I can't believe I'm doing this. When is, is the shift almost over? 
And then all of a sudden, one person just goes, oh, hi, Joe, how are you doing today? And you perk up because you hear your name. And I'm like, oh, I'm not a robot, wow. <laughs> like somebody decided to engage you. Somebody decided to, with a smile, say, you saw that your name tag, called you by your name, said hello, how are you doing? That very simple thing, just very simple little silly thing. All of a sudden your mind goes from all this negativity and, and, and um, to boom, you're happy. Your mind is peaceful and calm. And then what happens? You know, okay, that person leaves. And then the next person, and you're like, oh, okay, I'm back. But, but just for that one split sec, for that one period of time, that person gave you a gift, didn't they? Just by having that basic metta, that basic kindness to, to the, the basic humanity of calling you by your name. So remember that, you know, and, and ever since that happened, every time I was online, I, I remembered that and I would say, hello, how are you, you know, call them by their name, talk to them because I remembered how it felt. That's part of compassion is the understanding. I knew how it was, so I know what they're going through and I want to do something good for them. That's part of that compassion. So it's important to, and this also helps us to, to not get caught up in the whole, the world sucks and human sucks. You know, these people, you know, humanity's a virus and all these kind of things. And it's just, you know, that, that, that's no way to live. That doesn't, that doesn't help your mind. That doesn't, you know, there's, it's, it's, just, it's just such a negative mind state that doesn't help you. And it certainly doesn't help the other people that you're going to come into contact with. So it's just so much better in that regard to practice metta. And not only for humans, but also for those that we don't like too much, like bugs and animals. Oh, well, of course, so, you know, it's really nice and easy to have, oh, I have metta for those cute little dolphins and kittens and all these cute little animals. And then a spider comes, ah, die, right? You know, so, but metta has no barriers, no limitations. All of these beings, we want to have goodwill towards. And that doesn't mean that we're going to be like, oh, come here, poisonous snake or spider. You know, that's where like compassion with, with wisdom, like, that's where wisdom is important. Metta is not like, oh, I love you, big anaconda spider snake. <laughs> that's not metta. That's you, you know, you, you understand. You know, like, okay, um, even if it's like a poisonous snake, a poisonous spider, whatever, you know, I have metta for you being. We can't really live together because either you're going to kill me or I'm going to kill you. So maybe we can find a way that we can live separately or whatever. But, you know, you can have metta for this being. So, you know, when you see a spider, when you're in your kutis or whatever, and you see a spider or being, have metta for it. You know, if you don't want to go to sleep with it, you don't want to, to live with it, at least try to, you know, capture and release. Bring it outside. You know, where there's some big spiders. There's like, there's, you know, I went to, my kuti went down, I went to lie down, and like right here, there's a spider probably about half the size of my hand just hanging out, boom. And I'm like, oh, hello, friend. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have metta for you. And then I, I came and I got the, the capture and release and I took them outside. You know, so th this is important to, we don't want to limit this. And when you, when you see that kind of aversion towards a specific something, that's where you practice your metta. You have an aversion towards spiders. You have an aversion towards whatever. Practice your metta. There's a sutta where the, it's, um, where the Buddha, the, what happens is a monk gets killed by a snake. And they go, the monks go to the Buddha and they say, this monk got killed by a snake. And the Buddha says, well, if the monk had metta for the snake, he wouldn't have gotten killed. <laughs> and so people think, oh yeah, that's, that's ridiculous. How can you think about that? But what, but what the Buddha taught in that was <clears throat> practicing metta towards all of these beings that they, they, you know, they have the potential to hurt, to hurt you, but you practice metta towards them. And it says, I have metta for those with no feet, with two feet, with four feet, with many feet. And it says, may those with many feet, two feet, four feet, may those with these kind of feet not hurt me. 
So you're like, I have metta for you. Please have metta for me. Don't hurt me. You know, go. So, um, so it's important that you practice this. And, and being in, you know, in, in uh, warmer weather here in the woods, you have ample practice for that. So it's also um, good to practice with situations and experiences. Metta is not just for living beings, right? Why? Because we're dealing with ill will in our mind. We can have ill will towards experiences. We can have ill will towards inanimate objects. Dang microphone, psh, you know, stupid this, stupid that. It's not that, you know, we, we really think that this, whatever, this inanimate object is a being and we really hate it. It's just, it, it's aversion in our mind. And this is the, the, the focus of that aversion at the time. So what you do, you know, whatever, that, whatever experience, whatever thing, whatever situation, you practice metta towards that. You know, it's not like you're saying, um, microphone, may you be well, happy, and peaceful. <laughs> but, you, but you say, okay, um, you know, sometimes it's, you know, I've anthropomorphized things sometimes, like, oh, you know, thank you very much for, for teaching me this lesson, this kind of thing. Finding ways that, um, that help you in this regard. And so, as I'm over time a little bit, and, uh, but I'm almost to the end here, it's important to pra- make the practice your own. Everything that we're teaching you here, the words, visuals, different techniques, you practice these things. See what works for you. See what doesn't for you. Try different things. Try, you know, a lot, a lot of what I've taught you is, is what I practice myself. And it wasn't necessarily what I learned here. It wasn't necessarily what I learned from somebody else. And so I took what I learned and I put that into practice. And my own practice morphed and evolved from that. Like the words that I, that I give to you, the words that I gave to you, that's something that I just used for my own practice. Right? It's not something that somebody taught me how to do it. I took the practice that I, I learned from here and that I learned from others, um, and I put it into practice and I changed it around. You know, this is important to do in this practice, metta practice. It's interesting because unlike like maybe like mindfulness or breathing or... or um, uh, four foundations of mindfulness. Metta is pretty wide open. Buddha gives you these basic general instructions. And like the words and the visuals and all of these things are wide open for you to practice. Wide open for you to use and to, and to see what works for you. You know, like the may you be well, happy, and peaceful. That, for me, after practicing that for a while, became like a mantra and it was too little. And, and so that, you know, and so other people might see what I taught and what I teach and be like, well, that's too many words, you know? Um, so it, it depends on the person. It depends on the person's practice. Try it. See what works for you. Develop your own practice. A lot of times I don't even use words. I'm much more of a visual person with my metta. So I can go around, give metta, you know, like when we're doing the metta sutta, and I can just have in my mind a picture of the earth and a picture of the, the galaxy, yada, yada, you know, just expanding my metta. I don't have to say any words. I could be chanting other words and I'm giving metta. So this is, it's wide open for you to make your own and to develop in that regard. And so in closing, you always have a choice. You can abide with a mind of ill will, the heavy mind, or you can practice, set the groundwork and move towards abiding with a mind of goodwill, a mind of compassion, a mind of appreciative joy, and when need be, a mind of equanimity. This is a, you'll find as you practice this, this is a much more preferable state of mind to live with because you might have to live with other people, but you also have to live with yourself, live with your own mind. You can't escape your own mind. You know, you can't escape yourself no matter how hard we try. Um, so it behooves us to make the choice to live with a mind of limitless goodwill as opposed to a mind of ill will and hatred. <clears throat> and this practice is indeed, it's meant to be lived. It's not meant to be studied and, and to, to you know, sit on the cushion and okay, I'm gonna say these words. When you're out there 
in life, <clears throat> life is teaching you. You take those lessons, you take those experiences, and you apply these techniques. You apply this to your life directly. And that's how you understand how it works. That's how you understand the benefit to it. Until you do that, it's all theoretical. You want to apply this in your daily life. It's not easy. It's not easy at all. Nothing about this practice is. We're going against our natural inclinations. We're, like the Buddha says, we're going against the stream in this practice. That's why it's hard. But that's also why it's very worth it. So eventually, we can reach that, that uh, ideal that we set in the beginning. Right? The ideal is... Um, the ideal is happy we live, friendly amidst the hostile. Amidst hostile people we live, free from hatred. No matter what's going on outside, we can live with mindfulness, with metta, in our own mind. And in doing so, we not only change ourselves, but we change the world around us. So we keep this in mind and continue this practice I wish you much success in your metta practice and continue to be a force for good in your own life with yourself and others. Yeah. Uh,